have a Bible, I, I would encourage you to turn with, uh, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, over the past two Sundays, we have recognized that the church is accountable for itself. All kinds of businesses and police departments and fire departments and every, all kinds of corporations have internal bodies that police themselves. Even, it may not work very well, but even in the higher forms of our government, they call committees to discipline each other when they think something's afoot. And so it should not come as any surprise to us that God expects the church to be above board and to hold each other accountable. So we, we've spent quite a bit of time talking about that. Church discipline, church accountability. Uh, we are, we're not spectators, we're actually participants. There are expectations. And in the process of doing this, we recognized that, uh, and, and why, uh, a man living with his father's wife is wrong. Um, it's not wrong just because it's wrong with society. There are all kinds of relationships that society condones or does not condone, and uh, it's very relative. And that's not what guides us. We're guided by Scripture. A good example would be if a young woman was 18 years old or 20 years old, and she was to marry a man in his 80s. That's not something that society would condone or look upon favorably because they would think he's sick in the head or she's a gold digger. But those issues have nothing to do with the marriage itself, whether the marriage is lawful biblically. We talked about what marriage actually is. So when a man is living with his father's wife, that is wrong, first of all, because it's incest. The scriptures are very clear that that is one form of relationship that is prohibited. And the second reason is because that is a sexual relationship that is outside of marriage. And the Bible is explicit in explaining what marriage is. It is less explicit about how these things are to occur. But when you see it, you know what it is. It is a man and a woman who have entered into a covenant with each other for life. And it is an exclusive relationship. The fellowship is a lifelong exclusive relationship and the sexual relationship is exclusively within marriage. So the relationship we're here with this man is living with his father's wife is wrong because it's incest and it's obviously outside of the boundaries of marriage. So as we stand here at the beginning of chapter 5 and we look forward to what comes before us, we're going to see three different sections. And as uh, we move through the three sections, they will take us to the next major subject in this letter, uh, which begins in chapter 7. And so we're going to have three different sections. The first one is found in chapter 5. And it is this uh, inaction of the church that Paul is addressing. 
there's something going on in the church that's doing harm to the body of Christ, it's doing harm to this couple, and it's even contaminating the church's witness with the general public. And so Paul is addressing their inaction, what they're not doing, what they should be doing. And in the next section, Paul is going to address what the church is doing the actions of the church. And we're going to find out that there are members of the church who are actually taking each other to court, filing lawsuits with each other, and resolving their matters and differences in a court of law before lost people, lost judges, a broken, messed up system. And in the final section, which creates the transition into the next major subject, we're going to see that for some reason, People in the church are trying to justify some certain forms of sexual immorality. And so as we consider all three of these sections that move through chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see that in all of them there's a common denominator that Paul is encouraging Christians to put their old life behind them and to embrace and be encouraged by their new identity in Christ. Uh, He puts it this way. He says to clean out the old leaven. And so let's read the passage together in chapter 5. This is going to be our first time after three weeks in this chapter where we're actually going to read it. We'll begin in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from among you. For though absent in body but present in spirit, I have already decided about him who has done this thing as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord." Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, since you are unleavened. unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, by no means referring to this world's immoral people or to the greedy and the swindlers or to the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what is it to me to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. So put away the evil person from among yourselves. So we see here that the problem here is incest. In verse 1, a man is living with his father's wife. It's, it's widely reported, and because they are inflated with pride, they are not removing this person from their, from their midst, from the congregation. And we notice that this, uh, the woman, the action that, that is being encouraged here, Uh, I wouldn't say encouraged, I would say more of a command. The action that Paul is expecting to see happen is all directed towards the man and not the woman. 
And we notice that she is not identified at his, as his mother, so it would only go to reason that she is a stepmother. And since the actions are only directed towards the man, we can conclude that she is not a member of the church. She may or may not attend. She may or may not be a believer. But she has absolutely not submitted herself to the authority and jurisdiction of the local church. There are many who do this. There are many visitors that come and go from churches. There are many believers who come and go from churches, but never submit themselves to the authority of the local church. This is where there is accountability. This is what is occurring here. And so the man is the only one in this scenario who fits the bill, who falls underneath the jurisdiction and behavior is not condoned because it is part of the church body, the body of Christ, the identified body of Christ. There can be all kinds of people that come to church that are believers. But who knows? Who really knows? It's only when you join a church. It's only when you say, you know, I profess faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I've followed Him in believer's baptism. And I am convinced. I have discerned this and sought this out with God. And I am convinced that for the time being, God wants me to serve Him here in this local congregation. That's a church member. And so this is who this applies to. Now, verse 1 begins by saying that there is sexual immorality among you. And we talked about what this is. A sexual immorality is a, is a translation of a Greek word, pernia. It means the selling off of your sexual purity. It's the idea of prostitution. And so it is a catch-all term that captures any and all sexual relationships, all of them that are outside of the marriage covenant. Sexual immorality. So as we begin to look at new parts of this, it says, you are inflated with pride instead of being filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. So there's an expected response here that they would be filled with grief. And so when they begin to learn of what is happening, the band doesn't start playing and everybody starts celebrating. Instead, we're upset about it. This is not a good thing, this is a bad thing, and, and we're all upset. And there's grief over it and sorrow. That's the way we should be responding when we see one of us messing up. Not laughing or feeling good about, better about ourselves, but hurt. It's, a, it's an injury because we're a family, and we don't want to see each other messing up and falling, falling on, their, on our face and the disastrous things that come in life when, we're, when we walk away from God. And so that was the required response, the expected response. And so this little phrase, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he, the, the one who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation, that little phrase there does not really fill out the whole thing that we saw transpire, the steps in Matthew 18, where, where one person goes and talks to the person. If that doesn't work, two or three witnesses come and we try again. If that fails, then we bring them before the entire congregation and we try again. You know, so all of those things are built into this phrase. Because when you become aware of the situation and you see that it, it is, it's, it's not only grieving you, but it's per, putting the church's witness in danger that begins to initiate those steps that Jesus prescribes in Matthew 18. It's natural. It should happen automatically because that's who we are as believers. And, 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 and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
We're convicted by Him and directed by Him. And so this is the expected response. And it may end up that this person might be removed. Those are the words right here in our text in verse 2. Might be removed. So it doesn't mean that Paul's just like, he hears about it and he just goes right to the end and kick that guy out. It's not saying that at all. But by the time Paul is finding out about this, while he is in Ephesus, crying out loud. This has been going on for quite some time. It's widely reported. And so you can see that this is what's happening, but that's not what is happening. It's what should happen, but it's not. And the reason is because of pride. Now, pride lies at the heart of all sin. And so for the mere fact that they are not addressing this is sin. And Paul is identifying the reason as pride. But it's impossible for us to know exactly how this plays out. There are a number of scenarios and all kinds of conjecture that we can come up with to explain why the church was allowing this to go on. But, it, but Paul just cuts to the chase. He says it's because you're, you're proud, because you're being proud. Whatever it was, I mean, I, I doubt very seriously if, you know, when they found out about the relationship, they're all marching around the auditorium, blowing horns and trumpets, celebrating this relationship. I don't think that's the kind of idea behind the pride. But whatever it is, it's standing between this ongoing relationship and them responding, them being filled with grief and addressing the situation. Pride is standing in the way of that happening. Now, I will say that since we've spent so much time talking about church discipline, church accountability, what is marriage and what is out, and sexual relationships that are outside of marriage, we've spent so much time talking about this. It's important for us to remember that the reason removing someone from a congregation is so rare, it hardly ever happens, you, it, things hardly ever get to that point. The reason is because, number one, each one of us usually takes care of our own business. We don't really need someone else to tell us when we're doing something wrong. We already know. And so I would say that just about all sin in our lives is addressed right there. We have the indwelling, convicting of the Holy Spirit. But the second reason is because when you have close friends in the church and they know that you're messing up and they come alongside you, that usually resolves it. So in these first two instances, it usually takes care of, I would say, the vast majority of everything. So when church discipline begins, it's usually in that first stage where, you know, like if, if I didn't have my wife, I don't know what I would do. Um, she is constantly bringing things to my attention. She's not, and I, in the best way possible, because my wife um, loves me and she, she cares about me as a person but she knows I have responsibilities, and so she, uh, she doesn't want me to mess that up because it would damage you guys. And so in uh, our church, and our church's witness, and uh, it's a, she comes alongside me in the best way, you know. And so when she sees something in my life, and so I hope that you have someone in your life that's the same way. It's for your own good. And so most of the time we, we know we're messing up, and we address this in our own life. Other times someone will come alongside and say, hey, are, do you realize what you're doing? Or this could really lead to this or this. This is not a good idea. The way you handled that was wrong. 
you shouldn't say things like that, you shouldn't say it in that way, and, and those are all positive things because it, it ends things in a quick, short way where the damage is minimal, and uh, most of these issues are all resolved there. And then I would say the third reason this is rare is because, and I think that if you, if you just think about it, um, most of the time, these people leave on their own. They leave. And I hope that you can see the, the value and the necessity of church membership. Because if, if someone is doing something wrong and, and we come alongside you in one form or another in those steps of Matthew 18 and you don't like it, you just leave. You go to another church. And you, you find the church that you like and you, you go forward or whatever and you join the church. But the way it's supposed to go is you're a member of a church body and when God moves you to another location, when God, not you, not the problems you've created that you don't want to address, but when God moves you to another congregation to serve Him, it's a good transition. And the, and the church you left will give a good word for your standing to this church. And so it is a transfer by letter. So when we came here, we came from another Baptist church that gave a, a letter that said that we were members of that church and in good standing. We weren't running from something that we were doing wrong and bringing it here. But when we don't do all of those things, now in other situations, uh, like for example, uh, myself, when I grew up in church and then decided to go run off and be uh, stupid, uh, when I did finally come back to church, you know, it was I was coming a, on a statement of faith. You know, I turned my life over to Christ. So there's a, this happens in different ways, but no matter how you slice it, I hope that you can all see that there is incredible accountability in a local congregation. It is it is put in place by God to protect us to hold us accountable. And it is, uh, it's the best way. And uh, I, hope we, I hope that we can all see this. Now, uh, as we read through our passage, we come to verse 5, which is uh, a very difficult verse. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so again... This is something that's happening at the end. You know, the vast majority of all of these things happen uh, when we take care of our own problems or when someone very close to us comes alongside us. And uh, in the rare situations where two or three people have to go to this person and that doesn't work, and then you've even got to take it before the congregation. So it's very rare. But here in verse 5, it's, uh, it's the end of the road turning that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This describes God withdrawing His protection so that our sin takes its natural course. The idea here is that being outside of the church is a bad idea. That there's no safety outside of the church. You want to be in it. And that there is protection from being here. I mean, connected to the body, we're safe. It's a safe place, a good place. 
We're staying in the fellowship of God and we're submitting to Him and letting Him work in our lives and make us better. And when we, when we get outside of this, we put ourselves in grave danger. And so the idea here is, is if the person will not stay in our fellowship and, and do what's right, then they're being placed outside of, the, of God's protective hand. It's a terrible, scary concept because the Bible tells us that the world is the spear, the, the spear of the devil. Uh, when you go outside of the church, you're heading into that world of sin, uh, the, the way the world thinks. It's the place where fallen angels uh, rule and run amok. It's the idea of stepping outside of an umbrella. And if you're bald-headed like I am, when you step out from that umbrella in the rain, and those raindrops hit your head, it really gets your attention. Is the concept of uh, 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And so it is the idea of a believer being turned over to the consequences of his sin. And they will run their natural course. We saw in Romans chapter 1 talking about unbelievers, where God gives them up to a depraved, reprobate mind. He gives them up, lets their mind just become completely destroyed with sin. This is talking about unbelievers. But here, it's even Christians, where God steps back and lets sin run its course. Now, this may or may not result in death. It doesn't always. There's a couple examples I have, just if you want to look them up later. 1 Timothy 1.20. 1 Timothy 1.20. 1 John 5.16 and 17. These are a couple of instances where someone has been turned over uh, out into the world and the situation does not end with the person dying. But sometimes it does. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians... Paul is looking back on something that happened in the Old Testament when some, when some people that were members of the family of God died. The things that they were doing, they asked for it, they ended up getting it, and they actually died. And so uh, Paul says, um, <clears throat> we don't want to test God. When they, when they did it, they were testing Yahweh. But if we do it right now as Christians, we're testing Christ. God and Christ are the same thing. But... In the Old Testament, the language would have been about Yahweh. And here in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is talking about testing Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, Let us not test Christ, as some of them did and were destroyed in the Old Testament by snakes, nor should we complain as some of them did in the Old Testament and were killed by the destroyer. And so the destroyer here is an angel. And um, uh, this word of destruction, so the, the word destruction is, is, a, is a noun. A destroyer, the one who did the destruction, is a noun. And when he's destroying, that's a verb. So these are all the same word, Greek word, used in chapter 10. And here in this verse, uh, in verse 5, now, in the very next chapter, which we'll get to in time, uh, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we have a situation where some people die and some people don't. And the wording here is very important. 
I'm, I've got it up there on the screen. You can return to chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. Actually, it's verses 29 through 32 if you want to look at them. But the situation is that there are Christians in Corinth who are profaning the Lord's table. And because they were doing that, some of them were sick and some of them had died. It says, For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. And so here we see that some are spared death, and some are not. And all of this that we're talking about occurs so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's, of course, the, the wording of 1 Corinthians 5, 5. All of this, turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, that wording is a bit difficult, and it can sound like salvation is in jeopardy. And if this was the only verse we had in the entire Bible, that might be what we would conclude. And so we have to balance all of these things out when it says that all Israel will be saved. Uh, like we talked in Sunday school, it's, it's talking about all of the Jewish people who profess faith in Christ, turn their life over to Him. And so we have to take all of these things into the context of the, of the passage, the letter, and then the entire Bible. Um, this is how we interpret the Bible. And so the wording here, uh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord makes it sound like you're turning him over to Satan, hoping that maybe he'll be saved or something. But salvation is actually not in jeopardy. Because we have to remember that all of church discipline, church accountability, turning one over to Satan, uh, all of this ultimately has the idea of preserving the believer. That is what is in mind here. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this passage we're looking at uh, in verse 31, it says, just look at these words. It says, if we were properly evaluating ourselves, and that's that first step, you know, when we've, when we've sinned, we know we've sinned, uh, if, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's, uh, it's something that each believer does. Uh, so if we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. We would not fall into further judgment. And, and all of the things that we've been talking about in church discipline, none of that would happen. But if we refuse to, if we are not addressing our sin, but when we are judged... We are disciplined. And so it's another idea. Um, the judgment that the world will face is different than the judgments and disciplines that believers face. So if we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. So in chapter 11 here, we see that believers are being disciplined by the Lord. Some live and some die. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. And that's that familiar phrase and way it talks about Christians who have died. They've fallen asleep. I actually find that chapter 5, verse 5 in 1 Corinthians is... Uh, gives us incredible security for the believer in the midst of all of this. Even in the midst of this terrible situation, there's still security. Um, 
What we don't want to do is have God tell us things uh, directly from the pulpit or in our Bible devotions, listening to a preacher on a radio, or we're walking through Walmart and there's a Bible verse on, the, on a little calendar that we happen to see, or family members are saying something. When God comes at us in a million different ways, and what we don't want to do is ignore that. Um, before I moved here, before my family, our family moved here, I was a, a police officer in, in, in Missouri, and I was actually a police sergeant. And when I first became a sergeant, there was a situation, a crime had occurred. There was a, a situation that went into all the details. But usually, you know, you see like some guy gets shot in the leg and there's 90 cops show up, two fire trucks and all this stuff. Well, all of that boils down to one cop. One officer is going to end up making the police report. He's kind of in charge of everything and everybody kind of goes to him because he's the one who's directing and handling it. And the sergeant just kind of makes sure that that guy's taking care of business. And so this was the situation I found myself in at a, at a crime scene with a man that I had worked side by side with for years. We were friends. And now he was in charge of the situation and there were clear things defined in, in policies and rules and regulations, laws, very clear what he should be doing and he did not want to do them. And so I said, are you going to do this and this? And he said, no. I said, well, don't you think we need to do that because this and this and this? Nah. And so I went around and around with him with like this for a few minutes there at the back of a police car in the middle of this mess. And I'm trying to get this guy to, to see the light to what is, he's supposed to be doing. And he was fisted up in pride and he wouldn't listen to me. He wasn't going to do it. So I gave him direct orders. I told him what he was going to do and what he was not going to do. And I said, you know, we've been friends for a long time and I hate that you've put me in this, in this position and are forcing me to give you orders. And this is what we can do to God. We cannot force God's hand, but we can sure ask for it. There's the old joke that tells the same thing in a lighter way, but uh, there was a flood and the waters were rising and they were evacuating people on this mountain, because this, this hill, and it was eventually going to get submerged. And so they began evacuating the hill and they came to the man that lived in this cabin and the sheriff came up to him and said, do you, we got to go. He said, no, I'm, stay, I'm staying put. This is my house. This is where I've grown up at. It's where my mom and dad grew up at. God will protect me. So the sheriff explained to him about the flood and the waters were going to come and you needed to go. He stayed. Well, the flood waters did come. They got clear up on the guy's porch. So the sheriff came in a boat and said, hop in, we got to go. Get your best stuff and we got to go. He said, no, I'm not leaving. The Lord will protect me. Until finally the water was so high that it was up on the roof and he was up on the very tip top of the roof and they brought a helicopter. They lowered the ladder down. <laughs> And he refused to leave. He said, no, the Lord will protect me. 
And the water continued to rise and the guy drowned. And when he got to heaven, he was so aggravated and he said to God, he said, I thought you said you were going to protect me. He said, well, I tried. I sent the sheriff, I sent a boat, I sent a helicopter. So that's the idea here, is that God, uh, when we stay in church and we stay under the authority of the local church and we stay underneath the authority of Scripture, there is great protection, but there's also accountability. And so we, we do not want to be the kind of person who would ask for something. And then this chapter kind of takes a little turn as uh, he begins to explain to us why this is so important to us as a church as a whole. You know, we, we get the idea that this guy is messing up and, and uh, you, know, he should, you know, we should be really sad that this, this man is messing up. But now he begins to explain to us why this is important to each one of us. And uh, he, I keep, this thing's really a clicker. So uh, when we look at verse 6, um, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, a little leaven, permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now in the Bible, leaven usually illustrates sin. Not every single time, but almost always. And I've talked about this before, and I almost know zero. I am definitely not a scientist, and I am definitely not a cook. And so what I understand is that yeast was expensive or difficult to come by, so what they would do is they would keep a little piece of dough that had the yeast in it. And when they would make a new batch, they would introduce that into it, and that yeast would permeate the entire batch. And the reason you want it to do that is so the bread will rise. And so uh, Julie didn't realize what she was doing over Thanksgiving, but I was watching her. She made the rolls, and she put them in there. And I was just kind of watching it, and I asked her some questions about it. And she's telling me about how it's going to rise and everything. And so I kind of watched it happen. And uh, she, when she's finally putting them in the oven, because I closed the back door, and she said, Craig, I'm trying to get the rolls to rise. You know, don't be slamming the door. And so when it came time to put in the oven, I asked her, I said, well, are we going to put them in there because that's going to stop it from rising? And she says, no, it's going to continue rising. And she showed me they'd gotten a lot bigger in there. But uh, that's the idea here. Of, uh, so in the Bible, it's actually a, a bad picture of what sin does to the whole batch and how it gets into everything. And so it's an it's a unwelcome problem. Now, in the Bible here, he's using this talking about the Passover and unleavened bread. And we, we will remember that at the very end of the, the plagues, when God was working on Pharaoh and bringing him to a place where he was going to allow the, the Jewish people to leave, and Moses was able to lead them out, that the final one was where if you did not put the blood of the lamb on either side of your door and at the top. So you would have blood running straight down the door and on the sides. It's quite a picture. And whenever you would do that, when the, when the angel would pass over that house and, the, and the, the firstborn was spared, but everyone who didn't, their child died. And so that was the Passover. And so it is something that the Jewish people commemorate and remember 
all the, all the time and ever since. And uh, it's basically what we are observing when we have the Lord's Supper. We're remembering because Christ is our Passover lamb. Now, what would happen is they would have Passover and then immediately the next day for seven days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that is because when, when Pharaoh finally said, all right, get out of here, go, there wasn't time to talk about this or, you know, go ahead and get the last bit of stuff out. It was time to get your stuff on this roll. There wasn't time to watch the bread rise. So no yeast in the, in the bread, no leaven in the bread. There's no time. And boy, wasn't that the truth because when they got to the banks of the Red Sea, Pharaoh was hot on their tracks. And so they had to go. And so it is something that they celebrate every year. And uh, it's kind of, I've learned a lot about it, reading about it, but um, uh, sometimes you don't know how much of it's true when you hear about these traditions and stuff. But the idea is that they would go through the entire house from top to bottom to make sure that there was no yeast, no leaven whatsoever in their home. And so on the eve of the Unleavened Bread Festival, every home in Israel was clean. What a picture. Making sure there's none of that in your house. And they would play little games with their kids and they'd put little pieces around the house to see if they could find them and they'd get a reward for finding it. But what a picture of making sure there's nothing in your house that's filthy and rotten and bad to be clean. And so all of this is a picture. It's a picture of the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Christ as our Passover lamb and the absence of sin the removal of sin and the absence of it in our lives. And so Paul is saying this should be reflected in the way we live. He says, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Because ultimately Paul is warning the church there that allowing sin to remain is going to corrupt the entire congregation. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to start committing incest. But it begins to work its way into all of our hearts where we start to condone sin or allow sin, justify sin, tolerate sin, give, give liberty to sin. And that will manifest itself in all of our lives in different ways. It's a mistake. So this is a warning. And as this chapter closes in verses 9 through 11, you know, I'm all the way down. He says, I wrote to you a, a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's talking about correspondence he's already had with them. And so they were asking him a question. And for some reason, they apparently thought he was telling them not to associate with the lost people. That's not at all what Paul was talking about. He was saying, no. He says, look, he says, he said, I did not mean, in verse 10, he says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. That's the idea of a ship being in the water, but water not being in the ship. And then verse 11, he says, But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Well, this is a short list of unrepentant lifestyles, and there are all kinds of other things that we could add to that list. And when he says not to eat with them, 
It's not completely literal because believers will find themselves eating with other believers who are out of fellowship. Maybe it's your spouse, or maybe one of your children. What he is saying is that as a church, what we do not want to do is make them feel like everything is great. Let's pray.